Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, episode 223, Never Assume Anything. Last time, the commandos landed on the northwestern shoreline of Madagascar to start the takeover and occupation of Diego Suarez Bay, and with it, the entirety of the island. But there were a few hiccups early on. First, the French troops at Windsor Castle, a fort on a height near where the Red Beach designations were, would not give up, despite air and naval attacks, which made the commando's job harder of traveling south of the fort so they could either swing to the southeast and approach the main city and Serain from the southwest, or cross over the Andrakaka Peninsula to capture enemy guns located there, closer to the bay itself. But at least the Vichy sloop Don Tre Castu had been neutralized, now stuck on a sandbar with enough damage done to make sure it stayed there for the rest of the fight. And of course, there was Lieutenant Commander McMullen practically ramming the Bacadero onto shore to make sure the rest of the Bren gun carriers and other equipment could be offloaded, without having to waste time with smaller ships doing all the work. And by 7 p.m., all equipment from the Bacallero was on shore. But going back earlier in the day, it may be remembered that the landing sites along the western shore had been labeled north to south, red, blue, white, and green beaches. And it was among the two most southern beaches, white and green, that within the Ambarata Bay, that most of the offloading of supplies would take place. Problem was... It was a marshy area, so a clear path, any clear path, was needed to be found, so the men could double-time it to maintain the element of surprise. The way it was working out was that, after the men and goods were dropped off at either Blue, White, or Green Beach, they all met up about a quarter mile inland, but a path or road was needed now, so plans could be made to carry all their stuff as fast as possible. Hence, C&D companies of the Royal Scots Fusiliers, joined by a battalion reconnaissance group, all led by Lieutenant Colonel Armstrong, went forth to find that road. Fortunately, a path was found that led to a road, a poorly maintained road, but beggars can't be choosers. The road they found attached the nearby town of Amborarata, obviously named after the bay or the other way around, to another town called Mangoki a bit further to the east, almost in a straight line east. And this road, it was discovered, led to the main road that connected Anserain with Arachart, where the airfield was, to the south of the regional capital, Anserain. And with that, the race was on, between the Welsh Fusiliers and the Scots. This is often done in organizations and in the military to get people to push themselves harder than a leader could, and it would be the Welsh who reached the road junction first, so they were given the honor of marching north to engage the defensive line just south of Anserain, while the Scots were left to travel further east to capture the Arachot airfield. Though race might be too strong a word, as their vehicles were still coming off the ships, so the Welsh and the Scots had to carry all their items or pull them on handcarts borrowed from locals. On that subject, when the islanders spotted the men in uniforms, either walking, riding bikes, or the lucky few motorcycles, they failed to respond or just didn't care. They were French, after all. And here is an early mistake that the Vichy made. 
Yes, the strong defensive line was located between where the invaders were and where they wanted to be, but as the land even before the line was anything but flat, with untrimmed vegetation of various kinds, snipers or some sort of ambush could have dealt the approaching Welsh some serious blows. As it was, the only thing the men had to deal with, besides walking and carrying their goods, was the heat. No one tried to slow them down. No one tried to divert them from their obvious path. Another tried-and-true method of defense. As Sergeant Croft Cook put it, there was no sound of firing, no glimpse of the enemy, nothing to break the warm peace of the day except the occasional rattle of a Bren carrier. And that, of course, belonged to them. Still, military prudence demands that the Welsh put a strong force in front, so the few Bren carriers that had been offloaded were in the lead. And just before reaching Anamakia, about eight kilometers west of the main city, a French naval officer, Captain Yvernat, and three sailors were come upon. They said they had been planning to go fishing that morning, but something happened, and it was cancelled. Well, now... They were prisoners of war. Or were they? Here was the perfect opportunity, however small, of ending this war before it really got going. This had been planned out beforehand, so one of the Welsh officers told Iverna that he was free to go, provided he took a letter to the French governor-general. It was a letter from Admiral Seifert himself, who wanted to stress to the French that the British had no long-term desire to hold Madagascar. This was only a war measure. In direct terms, it said, Madagascar was French and would remain French. Further, that any and all who cooperated with the British would stay in office and be paid by His Majesty's government. As for those who resisted, if they had French passports they would be sent to France. Now, this was a long shot. Colonel Clairboux, the military commander, had already sent out a broadcast that day saying, Diego Suarez will be defended until the end in accordance with the traditions of the Army, the Navy, and French aviation. But it had to be tried. Any chance of non-fighting and wrapping this up early to ready themselves for the Japanese had to be taken. Captain Yvernat, departed at 8.15 a.m. Yet Ivernal, like Hamlet in dealing with Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, was delving one yard below the British mines. He and the three radians with him had not been trying to fish that day, but rather had been sent out to ascertain why Number 7 Battery, close to the West Coast, had gone silent. Had something happened to them or the telephone line? But Ivernal would not get that far as he and his had just been captured. Also, the commander at Windsor Castle, who had pretended to surrender to only throw grenades at the commandos, had sent two runners that morning, before 7 a.m., back to the area's capital with information about the invasion. So by the time Ivernal had showed up at Anserain with his message, the Vichy knew there was an attack and they had a good idea about the size of the force coming at them. Later, the British would be accused of naivete by sending their message, spelling out their terms and intentions. But again, it was a small risk that might reap huge rewards. The fact that it did not is unimportant. Clearly, the British had landed. 
And with all this knowledge, Colonel Clairboux sent a company of Senegalese light infantry to slow down the approaching 29th Brigade. Further, he had three companies added to the defensive line just south of Antserain. This was going to be a fight. But it would be going too far to say that the Senegalese light infantry were to be sacrificed. The position they set up in, the Col des Bonnes Nouvelles, or Good News Pass, was a slope of a ridge which oversaw the pass, about 15 miles or 24 kilometers east of Courier Bay. And, as the Welsh would find out, this defensive position not only had dugouts, concrete machine gun emplacements, and was well hidden, but was the last of a series of positions before reaching Diego Suarez Bay. And the Senegalese were driven there in trucks, while the Welsh walked. The Anamakia Road the Welsh were traveling on went north, but it was to the southwest of Antserain, so the attackers were coming at the port city, generally from the west. They went as fast as their slowest member allowed, but Brigadier Francis Festing, in command of the 29th Brigade, was in the lead in a Bren gun carrier. At 11.15 a.m., Festing and company reached Col des Bonnes Nouvelles, which is when the well-hidden Senegalese opened fire. Festing's driver was hit in the hand, the first casualty of the Battle of Madagascar. Taking in the threat before him, Festing had the men stop and sent two companies around the flanks of the height. Meanwhile, Festing called in for armored support. Back at the beaches, the last of the 12 tanks were put on land at 10 a.m., but when the first four of these were on solid ground, Major Simon sent two Valentines and two Tetrarch light tanks to help Festing. Major Simon went with them as he was in charge, and two more tanks would be sent soon. With no defenders in their way, soon these tanks were at the Anamakia village, and they rushed into action. For what it's worth, this would be the first time that the British used tanks to support an amphibious landing. It would not be the last. The tanks rushed to the base of the height, supported by two 3.7-inch howitzers of the 455th Light Battery Royal Artillery. But soon it was clear to the British and the Senegalese that the armored vehicles could not scale the ridge, nor could their larger guns fire directly on the threat from above. As this was the case, the Senegalese started firing again, this time at the supporting fusiliers who thought they had cover. Not only were the infantry stopped in their tracks, but Festing was also forced to stop his Bren gun carrier, and without tank support, soon it was too hot, as Festing and the brigade major jumped out of their carrier and ran behind a mound of earth. The situation remained thus until that afternoon. Coming to the rescue were four more tanks and the South Lancashire Regiment. Earlier that morning, though not easy, all men and equipment of the first batch had been disembarked, so the South Lancs, being held in reserve, were offloaded and told to join the 29th Brigade. And it's a good thing that they left the ship that they were on, as the wind whipped up, forcing all of the ships to drop more anchors. And even though the wind was now at a gale force eight, the ships soon went back for more men and equipment at the larger ships. The war was on now, and nothing could be allowed to get in the way. 
By 2 p.m., some of the South Lanks, including the Battalion HQ, were at Col del Bonne Nouvelle. During all this, the 455th Light Infantry had kept shelling the Senegalese, to the point that they left their current position and reassembled in a trench to the rear of their position. And with no one firing on them directly, the Welsh Fusiliers, backed by the South Lanks, ran up the height, bayonets fixed. The height and defensive works were taken, but some of the defenders got away, back to Antserain. The cost? Two officers killed and a few fusiliers were wounded. But the operation had taken five hours. The Senegalese had done their job. Still, they, the French, had lost 30 men of their own, and all who were captured were wounded, showing that they were defiant. The British troops now realized they had a fight on their hands. As time was of the essence, to allow an opponent time is to allow them to regroup and focus their defenses. While the Senegalese were engaged, two Valentine tanks had continued on north, and before too long, they ran into two trucks filled with Vichy reinforcements, making for Bonne Nouvelle. These trucks were quickly shot up and destroyed. And now that the Senegalese had been neutralized, the Valentines, the heavier tanks, were soon joined by the Brengun carriers and two Fusilier battalions, with the Scots behind them. They had started up at 3.15 p.m. As for the men who had ran up the height, they were told to rest a bit and then catch up. Nothing could be allowed to stop Anserain from falling that day. Soon the two Valentines were caught up by three Tetrarch tanks when they entered a good road. They had been making good time and guessed they were about to go even faster. There was some distance between the tanks and the infantry, but that quickly changed when the men were fired upon from up ahead to the left of the road. The men scattered, taking cover, but the tanks kept going, now passing the men, as the British believed that the French had nothing to counter their armor. They were wrong. Now that the invaders were closer to the main defenses of Anserain, they were within range of the French 75mm guns. The two types of tanks heading closer to the enemy 75 guns, not that they knew this yet, had two pounders as their main gun, or 40mm. But the Tetrarch was a light tank, and the Valentine an infantry tank, so it was twice as heavy and better armored. Not that either one could stand up to the 75mm gun. When the order was given, the French 75s started firing, soon joined by other, though smaller, calibers. Not that it mattered, as one of the first shells hit the lead Valentine, killing its driver. Then the second tank was hit. Its driver, a trooper Bond, pulled himself out of the driver's hatch, but due to his weakness and injuries, he fell out, uncontrolled, and landed in front of the tank. The tank kept moving forward, and when it was on him, he screamed in pain, and he begged Major Simon, who had been in the tank with him, to shoot him. Simon hesitated, but the tank finished the job. Not that Trooper's body could have stopped the momentum of the tank, so it continued to roll forward, now out of control. And now that it was closer to the French positions, guns along the line fired at this wayward tank and finished it off. 
Next, for some reason, the two closest Tetrarch tanks, again light tanks, continued down the road, firing as they went, versus implementing defensive maneuvers. The next moment or two is predictable enough. The lead Tetrarch was hit, the officer killed, and the driver severely burned, enough that he would soon die of his wounds. Then the second Tetrarch was hit and in flames. In hindsight, it's easy to criticize the Tetrarch commanders, but they had a job to do. Still, they were about to be outdone in the crazy category in the next few minutes. The commander of the fourth tank hit, grabbed the machine gun from its mounting, and jumped down. Gathering the wounded around him that could still walk, he and they charged the French guns. Now, this would be an incredible scene in a movie, but this, this was reality. All the French guns, big and small, opened up. Within seconds, the brave but foolish group was pinned down. The last tank, another Tetrarch, stomped behind all of this fighting. And climbing out, the officer of that tank crawled forward to see who was still alive. The tank commander, Simon, ordered this man to reverse course and tell Brigade HQ of their situation. He did so, and for his pains, he came upon another truck loaded with Vichy troops. Soon, that truck as well was set ablaze. The French guns had tried to stop this tank from getting away, but they failed. Yet, they could still attack the enemy tank crews, now on the ground, some of them wounded. The French tried to surround this small group, but the British tank crews fired every weapon they had to prevent this, and so the French tried again and again, but they were held back until 3.45 p.m. But with their ammunition depleted by holding off the French, these men soon had to surrender or be wiped out by the French guns. This local French victory was made worse for the Allies, as by this time, they had lost eight of their 12 tanks. Only one Valentine and three Tetrarchs were still operational. It was these tanks still making their way north, led by the Scots Fusiliers. As they moved, the infantry was harassed by French snipers, but clearly they needed more practice as few men were hit. As for the armor, the French had three Potez 63s, a multi-use aircraft, make a run on the armor. Fortunately, the tanks remained intact. But as the French organized themselves, they were able to launch air attacks against Blue Beach. Two Moraine fighters strafed the beach, but they unwisely kept returning. The men on the ground eventually got their range and shot them out of the sky. As the 29th Brigade kept moving north, closer to the Anserane perimeter, Brigadier Festing, Lieutenant Colonel Hugh Stockwell, and Lieutenant Colonel Armstrong of the 1st Battalion put their heads together to assess the situation. Losing the majority of their tanks for this operation was a heavy blow. Also, their large guns were yet to be put on land. The three men realized that, one, they did not know much about the defensive works before them, not good, and two, night was coming, and Festing wanted Anserain captured before the island's capital, Tananarive, now Antananarivo, further south, could come forward with even more troops and guns. In essence, the 29th would then be surrounded. There was nothing for it. At 7.30 p.m., with 30 minutes of light left, 
the British units launched their attack. The sole mortar detachment threw up smoke just ahead of the four tanks. The man in charge of them now, as Major Simon had been captured, was a Captain Palmer, and his plan was to make a smart dash right at the French guns. And as Captain Palmer had the heaviest tank, the Valentine, the three Tetrarchs lined up behind him. Here's how Sergeant Kleeg of the Hussars described the moment the tanks cleared the smoke. As soon as we were clear of the pompous grass, all hell descended on us. How the few of us survived, I shall never know. The crack of the shells as they flew over the turret and around us sounded as if the artillery was on our hull. Clearly, the element of surprise wasn't going to work, so the tanks turned to hide in some woods nearby. But the woods were not that close. Two tanks were hit. One was Palmer's. He and the crew got out and tried to run for cover, but one of the men was hit. Palmer, to his credit, was able to catch the man before he fell. And just as he was about to carry the wounded man to safety, a high-explosive shell landed right next to them. Again, Sergeant Kleeg. One moment they were there, as if held motionless, and in that terrible flash, they were gone. While this had been going on, the infantry were on the move. C Company, 1st Royal Scots Fusiliers, charged north, with one platoon to the left of the Anserain Road, with two other platoons on the right. D Company was giving them support. The area was mostly flat, and the Fusiliers found themselves running down a gentle slope. The only rise in the area was where the French had their defensive line. The men were a little surprised that the French were not firing on them, but there were two reasons for this. One, they were focused on the tanks, and two, they were waiting for the charging men to get into machine gun range. Why waste expensive large shells when thousands of little ones can do the job just fine? Then the machine guns opened up. Lieutenant Thompson's platoon, to the left of the road, were stopped dead, only having gone 100 yards, and men started falling. Thompson himself was hit twice, but because of adrenaline, he didn't feel anything. Thompson would fall back, get his wounds dressed, and then return to his men, who were still under fire. And perhaps, because of all of the bullets flying at the left platoon, the two on the right actually reached the first line of defense. But now these men found themselves staring at an anti-tank ditch, seven feet wide, that had a dirt wall on the other side, seven feet tall. The Scots had gone as far as they could. It was then that D Company came forward on the right to hopefully turn the enemy's flank there. But by now it was dark and little coordination could be had. Then the South Lanks moved up but were equally unable to move forward, as in any movement on their part caused a strong and overwhelming response by the French guns. Lieutenant Colonel Armstrong called off the attack and went back to Brigade HQ to bring Brigadier Festing up to speed. The Brigadier did not like this, not at all, but he knew it was wiser to wait until morning to renew the attack. For now, some of the men were to make a perimeter, and the rest, closest to the enemy, were to stay in place. The British units might have stopped for the night, but the French did not. <laughs> 